ora and welcome to the Creative Matters podcast, where we talk to new, emerging and experienced artists from around New Zealand about their creative journey, art practice and process. I'm Mandy Jakic. This week I'm speaking with veteran New Zealand sculptor Jim Wheeler. Jim lives in Auckland and is an artist predominantly concerned with nature. When I see an interesting plant, I want it to be a native because it's just appropriate. It's what I want to know. It's what I want to portray. So all the works in the artist uh, gallery are native trees, uh, generally leaves or trunks, and, and the way they behave. Jim usually works in cast metals such as bronze, aluminium and iron, but he also uses concrete, ceramics, plastics, wood, stone and fabric, whatever is appropriate to express his ideas. His current work is a blend of botany, biology and beauty. His interest in plants and how plant communities evolve informs his sculptural practice. Jim has been exhibiting sculpture and drawing since 1979, with eight solo exhibitions and many group shows here and overseas. His latest exhibition, Following Nature, is showing at Artists Gallery from the 2nd of August through to the 22nd of August. I loved meeting Jim and his lovely wife Bunny today and welcoming them back to Muriwai, the beach that Jim came to on his very first day in New Zealand 41 years ago. Jim speaks passionately about his 43-year career as a sculptor, the incredibly involved process of bronze sculpture and his fascination for the mangamanga fern, the piriri leaf and the tanikaha, and how the New Zealand forests and all that lies within inspires so much of his work. Hello, Jim. Welcome to Muriwai. Hello, Mandy. So good to see you. And I heard that you came 41 years ago to New Zealand from the USA. And on the first day that you were in New Zealand, you came to Muriwai Beach. I came here um, cross-country when it was a little two-lane roads, and... Probably growing up in the east coast of the USA, where it was virtually forest for, forever because the agriculture had been stopped a hundred years ago at that point. And I was a little bit sad that, in my view, New Zealand looked like a golf course because all the forest, which is my interest in life, uh, were gone. But when I came here, I, I, descended into the bush and it was wonderful and I had a conversation and I on that first day I looked at the trees and I said this is ancient forest it looks like dinosaur era trees and it was true yeah I had this amazing insight straight away so uh, that got me hooked Mm. and after 20 years I decided I'd been here long enough to begin to use the native bush in my sculpture. Yeah, and you, you've done that so beautifully. I mean, you've really captured it. Well, first of all, welcome to Creative Matters. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for joining me. It's it, a pleasure. Oh, it's, mm. it's a real honour to meet you. And, you know, you've had such an incredible career in sculpture over 40 years. Yeah, I was born in a little town in North Carolina, which is a state on the east coast of the USA. It's one of the first colonies, English colonies. 
And it's about the size of Mata Mata or Kaitaia. Um, it's, it was just a little town, but it's quite old. It was there right at the beginning. Um, and two major crossroad um, at the time, 18th century roads, crossed north and south, east and west, but it never developed. When I was growing up, it was the county seat, the biggest town in the, in the whole county, but it was still only 4,000 people. Mm. And it was a lot like a New Zealand place. So when I came here, it didn't feel strange. Yeah. Mostly farming, little little um, furniture-making industries. Tobacco and cotton were big, and tobacco was probably, uh, you know, the biggest industry. Mm. So um, uh, it felt just like a New Zealand town. If you went there, you'd feel right at home. Yeah. If you live in, the, in rural New Zealand, it was like that. Right. And your your father was a professional forester. Yes, he worked for a power company. And as all power companies do, they buy a lot of land. And his job was to supervise um, the planting of trees, just like in central North Island here, vast um, stands of pine trees. Uh, and all the uh, harvesting and everything they use trees for. He was in charge of setting it up. So from all, from the very beginning of planting all the way through uh, their life and then uh, cutting them in, in the end. And unfortunately, there was a terrible ice storm uh, right at the peak of the harvesting after years and years, decades and decades. It snapped all these pine trees just like toothpicks. So um, <clears throat> that was a bad event. Mm, yeah. But he um, he studied forestry uh, and um, backed out of being a, a PhD type uh, forester to go into the actually out in the in the bu- in the bush in the woods. So he, I grew up going out in the woods and looking and listening to him and asking uh, as everyone does daddy are there <laughs> rattlesnakes and yeah say, all those crazy for, things he'd say if you look for them you'll see them <laughs> <laughs> so having a, a father who was you know a forester that i guess was your sort of introduction to botany and plants in a way like all children they sort of look at what their parents do and take it for granted um, my father and parents really were um, in, in interested in m- making sure we were educated, so I was able to go to university, uh, virtually saved from the moment I was born, so I could go to university, of course. But when I was at university, I had those two things, um, uh, biology and art, so I made sure I had one course every term in each. And then in America, you have to study a little bit of everything for undergraduate. So it really started, my interest in botany started when I was at university. I had these amazing teachers and they would, this one in particular took you out into the woods and would ask you these questions that were dumbfounding at the beginning. But what he was getting you to do was observe the forest and look back in decades and see why it looks like it does now. Mm. So that was so intriguing that changed the whole way I perceived walking through the forest, looking down at the tiniest things and looking up 
at the biggest things and also looking at as a community and how it all lives and works together. That began when I was at university. Mm, and you still have that, you know, that you can see that through your work and, and the way you live your life, I guess. Well, that's really what I do now. And it, it's taken decades finding your way through what to do and how to do it um, to get to this point. So, yeah, it was kind of like a, you know, like a formula that you have to grow into recognize its significance in the center point of your life could be wrapped around it. In fact, you could say the old phrase, you don't see the forest for the trees for me because I was a sculptor, but I made abstract art mm. like everyone else uh, in the late 70s and early 80s. That's what everyone did. Um, but coming here... I was completely struck, as I said before, by this ancient forest, mm. and I never stopped being interested. So I was constantly, constantly putting little bits together, you know, my, you know, every day two cents worth or whatever. And eventually, I said, I can do it, and, and becoming using art and using plants and in my art was a big step mm. and that started probably 20 years ago at least, wow. if not 30. Yeah, yeah that's take amazing. a long time. Yeah, so you've mm. had a long journey all around plants. Mm. So if we just go back to the beginning after university, um, how did you actually become a sculptor? <sighs> well, like all arts graduates, there's nothing for you out there. <laughs> so odd jobs, uh, waiting tables, that sort of stuff. Um and uh, eventually I heard that one of my professors uh, from one of my, I went to two universities, was living fairly nearby where I was at the time. And I went to visit him and he took me on as sort of an assistant for a short time. And while I was there, we were visited by a mutual friend that I'd met her once and he'd met it longer. And she was a sculptor, sort of, and she told us about this apprenticeship program in uh, New Jersey that was a rich man uh, that hired people to do his work for him. And his name was Seward Johnson. So he was part of, he was the heir to the Johnson and Johnson fortune. Mm -hmm. And he had an oceanographic institute as well as an art institute. Uh, the Seward Johnson atelier of uh, sculpture. So he was proving to his father, if you want to be cynical, that he was a worthy person to receive the fortune. <laughs> uh, interesting. So we had this huge factory, basically, mm. of 40 artists living and working together. So it was a little bit tense occasionally. <clears throat> and, the, and the job there was to take an idea from Johnson and he was a figurative sculptor, but he was more like uh, very, very um, Norman Rockwelly, or you know, very um, not sophisticated. He would get a person. He had a modeling department. They make a, a little three hundred millimeter model, and he would come in and bend one of the feet or something. So okay, and then he would come back when there was a two meter version or whatever life size figure, and he would 
push the nose sideways or something and walk <laughs> out. And then he would be there to cut the ribbon when the bronzes were installed. Oh, wow. He had his own company that was placing his art. So, and in between all that, he had all these apprentices and masters. Uh, we worked under master craftsmen and we moved around from stage to stage and learned everything from the ground up. And this was exactly what all artists or sculptors did from time immemorial. Centuries, centuries or thousands of years, artists worked under masters and learned everything just by doing it. Basically, you were slaves. Mm. <laughs> My joke was learn how to do it as an apprentice. That way you can make all the mistakes on someone else's work. <laughs> yeah, true. So I was able to go through all that two years, and it was set up like a school. I had certificates and and all that stuff, um, mm. just like a curriculum. Uh, um, and for the degree, it was all in black and white, which I actually presented to uh, the New Zealand government. Uh, I came down here uh, for a job. I met a Kiwi at this giant sculpture school and asked him for a job. I was young enough and foolish enough to jump off cliffs. Mm. And I came down here, and after six months, I decided I wanted to stay. So I had all these – I wrote back and got all the academic certificates, just like degrees, and pre presented them as part of my uh, bid to stay. Mm. And you could get – this was 1981 or two, and it was very easy to get permanent residence. Mm. And Muldoon, was, that was his think big – um, period, get skilled labor from overseas to build all these giant projects. So it was a little bit of a joke between me and the bureaucrat. We both smiled secretly at each other uh, <laughs> that I was qualified under that scheme. Mm, brilliant. I mean, that mm. must have been an incredible way to start your art career or your art practice. Oh, it was just an amazing, I can't believe how lucky I was mm. to stumble on it, really, through knowing just people and mm. friendships. Yeah. And, and what made you decide to go that way after studying biology? Well, I never gave up on biology, as as the story will tell. Um, as an artist, you have to be open to everything. You have to uh, fall back on this and that and the other as things change in your situation as well as the economy or whatever. So mm. um, it was a... It was a great opportunity. I worked very hard, and I made sure that um, I learned everything as well as I could. And when this opportunity came up, I asked a Kiwi. He came in, and I asked him for a job and helped set up bronze casting mm. here in Auckland Artworks Studio. And that reestablished bronze casting for sculpture in New Zealand beginning in 1981. It had fallen uh, into a few hands of a few sculptors that made their own work. There was a commercial one-man foundry that made all the um, monuments around town, mm. um, but he died. So everything had come to a halt. Wow, that's amazing, isn't and it? Just man, in the David, 80s. Yeah, this man, David Reed, who was an inorganic chemist uh, trained, he became interested in casting and he perfected what's called the ceramic shell process, which you can get into later. And he, was, he received a newsletter from where I was an apprentice 
because we published all the technology, how to make sculpture, how to make bronze castings. And he was, he came to New Zealand to visit, um, got a QE2 grant um, to study, you know, go overseas. Mm. It was kind of industrial espionage, really. <laughs> <laughs> he would charm the people wherever he went, and he went to lots and lots of foundries all over the world and get into the back rooms and see how they did stuff, you know. And he came mm. home eventually and perfected the whole process, which was being revived all over the world pit, bit by bit. Mm. And when he got it under control, the industrial stainless steel foundries and everything paid good money to learn how to do it. Wow, that's so amazing. It and it's, it's incredible to me that, you know, it was in the 80s and it was almost a lost art in New Zealand. I mean, It's almost a lost art all over the world. That's really surprising mm. because it is quite an ancient very it goes back thousands and thousands mm. of years so it hadn't mm. been it's it's interesting that it hadn't been kind of passed forward you know it wasn't being well it it only fell out of um fashion sort of beginning of the 20th century uh, modern art and all the movements shied away from any craftsmanship mm. or uh uh hard you know complicated things they wanted to be free and a whole new range of work started with the Dadaists in the 20s in Europe and spread all over the world where you could just call anything sculpture, you know, urinal. Mm. Uh, Marcel Duchamp yes. called a urinal, you yep. know, sculpture. You know? So all that sort of fancy stuff, bronze casting was out of fashion. Yeah, went and, by the wayside, yeah. which is incredible, really. Mm. Yeah, and luckily it came back. I mean, thank God. Well, um, my gallery gallerist, the, um, Rodney Kirk Smith, he actually thought that it was the lost wax process. So it was lost. Mm. But it's actually the lost wax process. That's part of the process. The wax is burnt away in yeah. the mold and then the bronze replaces where the wax was. Yeah. Oh, that's so, interesting. So that was funny. Yeah. <laughs> so it just goes to show, mm. I mean, yeah. It was kind of lost, almost lost. It was, you know, very, in, in very close. more ways than one, mm. yeah. So in 1989, you um, took the big step of becoming a full-time That's sculptor. right. I mean, it wasn't uh, it wasn't a uh, stepping from one platform to another. It was a little bit like standing on a, <laughs> a piece of wood in the middle of a swamp. You know, you, you, I had a job. It didn't pay well, but we were doing important work, um, getting people to make bronzes, mm. <clears throat> excuse me. And and I was making my own at the same time, so it was worth my while. And then I decided that I needed to focus fully on myself. <clears throat> but that wasn't, I mean, I had, I'd shown professionally here with Rodney Kirk Smith, and, but hardly any sales. So I had to do all sorts of stuff. I left being a founderman and started doing, props for advertising and, you know, anything and everything, working on little films, making stuff and, I don't know, anything and everything, designs, mm. awards, these sorts of things. Um, medals. Medals. Medals was more, more of a artistic thing. Mm. Um, medals are small coin-like sculptures that were really invented by the Romans or the Greeks or whatever, and they – they disappeared, but then they reappeared in the Renaissance. 
And then they spread across Europe, became very popular. And by the 19th century, they were too popular. And they were turning into advertising, really. But they were exquisitely made. Um, and then they fell out of fashion. But then in between the wars, they, a group got together to make art art medals. And that's still going. It's a French name, but I can't pronounce it. <laughs> <laughs> I studied Spanish. Um and it's still going, and it's an international uh, institute for medals, or not institute, but federation. Mm. And they have every two years international shows, and we started a group here, um, and it's been going since 1989. Um, and we've made medals and had shows. We've it's coming up to 30 years or longer now that we've been together, and we we celebrated the 25th at uh, Wallace Art Center, the huge exhibition, hundreds wow. and hundreds of works. So you're actually making medals for a certain purpose, or you're getting commissioned to make a medal. I've for been something? commissioned, yes, um, but generally it's just like any art form today. Artists have their own issues, and what they do is just translate into a different format. And it's generally quite flat. It's like a coin. You have to learn how to model in low relief, which means it looks round, but it's actually flat, which is very interesting. That's probably why I did it, just so, mm. you know, why? how do you do that sort of thing? It's mm. interesting. And how do you do that sort of thing? Very carefully. <laughs> <laughs> it can be very tedious, but you just mm. stick at it like everything. It looks like yeah. sort of embossing almost, some sort it, of embossing. It You have to somehow get the feeling, you have to get everything in, in perspective. You start with the, at the flattest areas and work upwards, but we're talking about millimeters mm. or less. You know? And how are you actually working with the metal? Well, you just have a... Anything like a block of wood or whatever, and a piece of plywood or something, and then you get plasticine, uh, which is um, a clay that doesn't dry, but it's mixed with oil rather than water, so it's an artificial clay, and then you can just work on it for hours and hours and hours. It doesn't dry up, mm. and you have you, you can even use magnifying glasses sometimes, but you have a light that breaks across from the side, and that gives you. You can see the texture and how, you know, it's very, very delicate. Um, you just, it's just like any, any art form. You just spend hours and mm. hours until it's done. So that clay piece is, is basically the mold. Well, it's actually called a pattern or an original. Right. And then a mold is a negative that's, you know, you make a mold from a positive. The original right. is a positive. Yeah. Then... Generally, uh, you can work in plaster, which is a liquid. You mix a liquid from a dry ingredients, and then you uh, pour it over the top and trying to get all the bubbles out different ways. And then it goes off very quickly. Say 20 minutes, it's hard. And then you very carefully separate the mold from the original, and then you've got a negative of what was positive. Right. And then you can use that to pour wax into. Um, you got to make two sides, obviously, but you pour the wax into this negative mold and you get a wax that you then perfect um, back the way it was because there's always mistakes and everything. Yeah, so you, are you actually carving the wax 
Well, it's more like modeling or carving, depending on the type of wax. Mm. If it's a hard wax, you can carve it, but generally it's a softer wax. Um, and you, you model it just like anything else, mm. like a sculpture. And then that's cast into metal, generally bronze, but you can do silver or whatever. Um, and you have to make another mold. It's very complicated. Mm, it's really complicated. Your sculpture is very complicated. You make an original, then you make a mold of that, which is sort of the negative. intermediate uh, quick grab of what it is. Mm. Then you get a casting from that first mold, which generally is, is plaster or something. And then you bring it back to as good as it was. And then you make a more permanent mold, generally out of some sort of rubber, silicon rubber with plaster backing so it doesn't flop around. Mm. And then it starts all over again. You make another wax from that mold, and then you have to clean it up to look the way you want it. And that is taken to a foundry where they make another mold. They, and then they put it in a substance that hardens under heat, and that heat makes the wax melt away that's the lost wax part right. yeah. and then there's a negative or hollow that's just like the wax that you made inside this ceramic mold but it's empty and then you pour the molten metal in there right so that could be bronze or bronze or silver or whatever. Aluminium. Yep, aluminium, whatever. And that's melted liquid. Yeah, and then it hardens and then you have to destroy that last mold <laughs> to get the metal out. Mm. And then you have to clean up where the metal is poured into it and cut it back the way it was. Wow. So again you have to bring back the sculpture the way it was at the beginning. Mm, that's a really yeah, huge very process. Very complicated. And yeah. do many sculptors, you know, using those kind of materials, do the whole process themselves or do most artists now take it to a foundry? Well, there's not a lot of people doing it full stop. Mm. And depending on your financial situation or your age, like I'm getting a bit older, I, I'm happy to pay someone to actually do everything, the, the, the uh, pouring of the metal, the, the casting, mm. and all those. There's a tiny part of it. Um, I make the original, I make the molds, I give them the wax, they cast it, and then it's rough, a rough casting. They give it back to me. I pay for them mm. to pour the metal, basically. Yeah, and then I have to grind and sand and hammer and weld and everything back, and so I do everything other than the casting. Mm. So mm. it's it's a little sliver of of the whole process, but it costs a lot. It's, yeah, it costs a lot of money, and the time you spend on it—that's really yeah. the expense. I can imagine, and it's mm. such a specialized, you know, industry, isn't it? I guess it's yeah. probably hard to find the right people for you to yeah, do. Yeah, you have to. You have to be nice and and use them as much as you can yeah. to keep them going yeah because yeah. there's not much money in it yeah they and we don't survive. want to lose those people doing that no, because you don't. there we go again it all mm. becomes lost mm. and a lot of those people i help train so um you know unless they start doing the same <laughs> yeah well hopefully they mm. will do what you did and pass it on well pass on the skills yeah it needs to be done mm. yeah it'd be really sad if it started to disappear yeah yeah it's a mark of civilization really mm. Mm. yeah other things coming up instead but you know it's the thing with art like any sort of fashion i guess it's it comes around doesn't that's it right. so that's right. hopefully 
you know, it will come and have its, its it day. It but will. it still, you know, is very popular, isn't it, that kind of sculpture? Well, it's, it's a lasting, it's a lasting um, object. It's a, a noble metal, not a precious mm. metal. Bronze is a noble metal, <laughs> which is a nice term. Mm. Um, and it is attractive. Uh, it weathers well uh, outside. It yeah. needs to be serviced. There's no such thing as a uh, service-free uh, um, material. If it's outside, it's going to have to be cleaned up and from time to time, mm. but it it will last for de- you know millennia. They're still finding Greek things and mm. Chinese things. And, yeah, which is amazing mm. that you're creating something that you know has such longevity. Yeah, I mean, I am a link in a chain that goes back so far. I mean, the Bronze Age, you know, which is mm. millennia BC. You know, that's right. Yeah. It's incredible. So, Jim, after that time making medals um, and you know coming out of the foundry work. You ended up um, with some commissions, like awards and that kind of thing? Yeah, along with everything, uh, making normal sculpture that was shown in galleries, um, medals were in that same arena, small scale, but you have to do all sorts of things. And I began to get phone calls from people wanting awards, uh, things um, that they would give their employees or their best clients, Things like that. That was intriguing, and it did help pay the bills. Um, and I made all these little things, some of which were quite prestigious. Um, the um, Olympic Committee hired me to do something. I made one year the America's Cup medals that the sailors were presented, like the Olympics at the end of the regatta. Um, I've done things for the music industry, like the um, uh, Hall of Fame Award, New Zealand um, Music Hall of Fame Awards. Um, so, you know, it can be prestigious, and it doesn't pay a lot because it's only a little, a few medals a year or whatever. Um, so that was that was a way of part of a, a suite of desperate measures. <laughs> mm, but they're <laughs> still going. Very, it's very beautiful sculptures. Yeah, some of them. Were, I mean, I'm really proud of some of the designs. Some were incredibly complicated to get across the, mm. you know, even begin. And did they did they give you the design, or did you come up I, with it? Always. Sometimes I was given a design, but those were the less interesting. Works, but sometimes I had to go through a dozen designs to get one at the end to to make. So you'd you'd give them your design idea. Yeah, well, I'd send them drawings and drawings. Eventually, I'd sort of get fed up and and um, either give up or or sometimes make something three three dimensional version, and they maybe and sometimes that seemed to to make them say yes. Mm. Right. And did they give you a brief? They'd give you a brief. But it was brief. Yeah. <laughs> a brief brief. <laughs> yeah. 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 Mm. Oh, that's interesting. Well, you have to be quite sort of tenacious to hang in there for 12, oh, yeah. 12 different well, drawings. You know, desperation is a, yeah. a good motivator. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And so go, moving on from there, I mean, you were a full-time sculptor. You know, you obviously started to become a little bit more known and, and making, making sculptures and, and objects for different spaces. Yeah, it's hard to tell. You, you're just, as I said, you know, it's fairly desperate, and you do this. You have an exhibition occasionally, not a lot of sales, and you get discouraged. And but you keep going. I think a lot of success is just basically you never stop. Mm. 
uh, you know, some filmmakers <clears throat> win the Oscars and all that sort of st stuff, but it's because they stuck at it that they get, you know, put in the Hall of Fame or whatever they call it. Mm. So um, it's up to it's the artist's job is to continue to mature not lose your way, yeah. not give up or, or fall into an easy routine that is not really interesting. Mm. So, not really feeding your passion. Yeah. And did you feel like you just, it was something that you just had to do? You, you just needed to be making that kind of work? It's mysterious. It's almost as the, the real mystery is how, where the ideas come from and, and, and all that. But yeah, I, my early love of botany, um, the joke of not seeing the trees uh, for the not seeing the forest for the trees, I actually suddenly realized at the same time as I was feeling as I knew the bush well enough here to to make comment or to use them as a metaphor. I started making botanical work, and I try to have all the ideas that artists have but expressed um using native trees <clears throat> the other point of difference is that i make them very quite beautiful because i am trying to get new zealanders to recognize what's under their nose that they have the most unique uh, forest ecology on the planet yeah it goes back to the very beginning of life still here but it, most people just say trees are trees are everywhere right so part of the <clears throat> job of making things beautiful is to express my admiration, um, uh, but also to get people to, to wake up and see these things, how valuable the, the treasure, in, priceless treasure that's here. Mm, yeah, mm. and it's so unique, isn't it, what you find in New Zealand? Yeah, yeah. and yeah. it's a good lesson, I think, for all of us. Stop and smell the roses, so mm. to speak. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. So you're um you have been, you know, responding to nature for twenty years now, haven't you, with your sculpture? Yeah, I mean it goes back further than that, but uh, specifically um looking at New Zealand trees and using different parts, leaves, branches, the vine, the way that everything's put together, um, is very interesting to a sculptor to see the forms and shapes and how it all twines around or whatever what is the actual process i mean how do you decide what you're going to make or you know what parts of nature or part of the forest you're going to use well it's to me it's intuitive um you go i mean i'm used to going in the bush and observing and looking up and looking down and putting it together and it, and things certain things just capture your your fancy uh, just like uh personalities and Certain people you're happy to know and you want to know them better. It's the same for me in the bush. I see certain things that I just stop. Sometimes I'm just completely just floored by this amazing shape, you know, and and it changes my life. I, I start become fascinated and I can't get enough and I keep making variations in different scales and different sizes because there's certain trees uh, here that um, change shape. The leaves, when they're young, are completely different mm. when they are mature. So all these stages it goes through. So if you really study something, you can spend months just 
getting uh, the different types organized and understood. Mm. And then with sculpture, you have different scales. You can make what are called maquettes, which is a uh, fancy word for model. And then you make a model and you work out what you do, what you want to do in a small scale. So it, you know, you can uh, do lots and mm. play around and not spend a lot of money or wait a huge amount of time because it's tiny. And what are you um, using for the model? Generally, wax. Um, I model with wax. Uh, I model with clay. I model with all kinds of stuff. But wax is self-supporting. It's quite strong and it's very light. So if you make something out of clay, it dries up and breaks breaks apart. Plasticine, which is similar to wax, is doesn't stick together. It just just um, it would crumble as well because it doesn't has no support for itself. Whereas wax is is stretchy, you can get it warm in your hands and twist it, and, mm. and all sorts of things you can um, add to it. You can just weld it on, cut it in half, mm. just like steel you know, or bronze. You can you can manipulate it, add to it, take away. Mm. That's amazing. And mm. what does what form does that wax come in? Is it a block? Yeah, the modern waxes are not natural waxes. They're petrochemical waxes, um, and you can buy them from, you know, petrochemical companies. <laughs> but um, foundry supply houses do exist because in du- industry, there's a big industry, so they have materials. Uh, so it's really just industrial materials. Mm. But you can you can play with these things. You can make your own formulas. You can use... Um, natural things, depending on the use, it's, you know, you can vary things. And there are ancient recipes that are ridiculously long. And mm. How did they think of using that stuff? You know? Yeah, but it'd be nice mm. to work with something like, um, you know, beeswax that's got that beautiful smell. Mm. I mean, mm. I don't know if it, it could be actually used for a model. But. It can be, but it's a little bit, it's not as useful or easy to use. Mm. Yeah. I got soft, some beekeepers soft. got very excited when they said, you know, they saw some, they were working next door on a hive and they, they popped in. My wife's very <laughs> friendly to people. They popped in and said, wax, wax. And they got all excited. But I said, <laughs> no, this is industrial. You know. Yeah, that's a shame that you can't use something <laughs> more natural. Well, you I could, guess. you could. Yeah. Mm. Um, and so you're, you know, I'm just kind of picturing you in the forest. Jim, mm, do you mm. actually collect I, things? Yeah. <clears throat> I collect home? things. Uh, one time I was sitting drawing. I'm part of, I've been part of drawing groups, and uh, this was the end of year party uh, get together, and um, and it was uh, in the bush along the edge of a bush. And most people went down to the beach and had a lovely visit, and I sat down in the bush and started drawing a magnificent ancient kauri. And then I looked down on the ground next to me and saw this incredible f- leaf. And it was the tiny kaha leaf, which I was <clears throat> obsessed with for many years. And it was just the most amazing leaf I'd ever seen. It's quite quite prevalent. It's, it's a very common tree. It's called the celery pine by okay. the settlers. It looks kind of like celery, Um it's it's a you know a stem that has lots of little leaflets mm. on each side. Mm-hmm. The the branches come away from the trunks, and all these things are really interesting to a sculptor. Sometimes the leaves 
wrap around like a um, Nico palm. They have these amazing cup-like shapes that wrap around the trunks and mm. leave the rings on the trunks and all the way that fits together, the f- the fruit and how it's all connected, the shapes are amazing. Mm, it's incredible, mm. isn't it? Mm. So much inspiration in our forest and our bush. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And to me, each, each one is like human beings. They're community. We're a community. We work together. Um, we should do work together and support each other more because the forests are not at war. Nature is not at war. It's a, it's a cooperative environment. Sure. There's things crowding out others, but they help each other. Trees are now, they're finding that trees communicate. They look after their young, they look after each other. Mm. Uh, this it's a, vast network of cooperation so it's it's a real lesson for human beings to you know say wait a minute we're mm. taking some wrong making some wrong decisions yeah and that's pr- another one of my core things is to try to lure people by beauty to consider these these underlying important issues of cooperation versus um uh competition mm. or or warfare versus um you know the spread of of life you know it's it's not taking over you know you can look at it in a in aggressive sense but it's it's not really that way mm. Mm. that's so good and we so there's so many of us who need to learn those lessons yeah especially now it is I'm a quiet voice and I'm not really uh, political artists. I'm not making protest work uh, that's quite brutal. It shows the suffering. I mean, that's important, but my way of doing things is to quietly uh, give some sort of a hint towards the way things could be or should be mm. or whatever. Yeah, mm. which is great, and that's important work. Well, it's it's... You know, it's what I do. This it's taken a long time, and this is kind of the way I've I've worked. You have to work out what you want to do and how you want to do it, and it has to be fed from your heart to to sustain you to keep going. Mm. You know, if you do something that's maybe um, sells well or something, you, you run out of steam. You know, if it's just a commercial success, I w- I would just wither and die if suddenly I was a Manhattan darling, you know. <laughs> Imagine mm. it. <laughs> yeah. I'd run out, run out of ideas in about, you know, two months or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. Because you have to just be a machine gun. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Oh, I mean, it's just it's so lovely to hear you speaking of what inspires you because it's obviously such a passion. Well, it's, I mean, why do we have to conquer the world? You know, live a good life, do what you really want to do, feed your passion, feed your children, and and just have a good life and, mm. and, and treat yourself well and your neighbors and, and, and love your family and friends and, you know, what more do you need? Mm, I know, I what agree. Do do? What, I totally what? agree. Yeah. And yeah. it is, you know, as you get a little bit older, you do have a better sort of view on on your life and the life that you want to lead it does change as you get older mm. i find mm. what well, has for Definitely. me yeah and in a good way you know i think you become a bit more reflective and and you don't need as much sort of materialistically but sort of more 
in your soul. Mm. Well, we haven't had the uh, the artist's life. We haven't had an opulent life. You know, we you have to learn how to live simply if if you want to do what you want to do, and you mm. you can build on that, but you never should lose sight of of the core of what you're doing, mm. if if possible. It's very rare. I can't believe that I live the life that I do growing up in America where it's just dog eat dog. No, you know, if you don't have a good job, you have no insurance. If you get sick, you have to sell your house. You'll probably die and you'll be broke, you know. Yeah, it's pretty so, terrible. We're very lucky in New Zealand. Yeah, I can't believe it. Yeah. Most of my friends and family just think, how, how the hell did you come to New Zealand in 1981, you know? I, I just followed my nose. I met a Kiwi asking for a job, came down, mm. and decided I wanted to stay and, you know, made a life. Mm, you know? The rest is history. Mm. Yeah, and you met your lovely wife, Bunny. That's right. She's a New Zealander. Yep. She yeah. was my landlady. Was she? <laughs> yeah, originally, yeah. Really? Yeah, yeah. So you have to break all the rules once. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like it. Yeah. And she's um, she's sitting up in our house having mm-hmm. a cup of tea, reading a book while yep. we talk, which is yep. nice. I told my husband I want to be called Bunny. I think it's the <laughs> coolest name ever. Yeah. Well, she, if you look at her little pictures when she was, uh, you know, six years old, she was a bunny. You know, <laughs> she, she earned the name. Really yeah, cute. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. adorable. Yeah. Um, so just back to your art, I mean, you you obviously are making a sculpture out of bronze mostly at the moment. Mostly, yeah. But you also use other um, materials like concrete and fibre sometimes and um, ceramics obviously is part mm. of that process and mm. wood um, and stone. So um, can you tell us when you were responding to the to nature in this way, is it is it mostly bronze, or are you exploring different materials? Well, bronze is. I have a high amount of training in bronze. Um, it's it needs to suit the idea and and the object. Bronze is can go green, it can go brown, it can go black. So it, there's a lot of colors in nature. It's trees, especially flowers, you know, kind of get out of control. You can you can't get reds. You can get a few colors, rusty sort of colors. So it's a limited palette. Mm. So bronze suits what I do. But if if I need something to express an idea, I'll use it. Like a block of concrete is a good idea to have a little sprout splitting it or something. Mm. You know, because yeah. nature, the will of nature will just it's relentless you know the drop of water will wear away anything if it continues to drop and the little tiny pressure that a sprouting seed exerts on where it's sitting you know it will crack a rock in half you know Mm. so uh these these are ideas so i use what's appropriate it's i put I use gold. I use whatever I think uh, will give the idea the final zest or the in emphasize something. If it's if it's covered in gold, that is the um, thing that is the center of the idea. I did a. I've had heart surgery, so I had a valve replaced. So I made a, a heart uh, sculpture that the part of it that represented the valve was covered in gold mm, and, and the sprout amazing. was coming out. Wow. A new life new was life. coming out you know, yeah. from that golden um, valve. That's beautiful. Mm. And when you make something like that that's so deeply personal, do you would you ever give it away? Was it I gave one to the hospital. Oh, that's a mm. nice idea. It's in the heart, one of the heart uh, wards. At Auckland, Auckland Hospital. Auckland Hospital, yeah. How amazing. Mm. Mm. 
That's a really nice thing to do. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, yeah. I've had heart surgery as well, ah, with a, a valve, yeah. so there we are. Yeah. We share something uh, uh, in we can, common. We can trade um, heart stories. Heart stories. <laughs> just, I always wanted my scar to be the shape of a lightning bolt. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I might ask my surgeon if he can that's accommodate. Right. I didn't think of it in time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's mm. interesting. We mm. can talk more about that later. Yeah. Okay. Um, mm. So just back to your um, your. Sculpture, which is, you know, obviously you have this exhibition coming up mm, at mm. Artist Gallery, which is um, opening on the 2nd of August and closing on the 22nd. Um, and all the work that you've done for this show is, you know, nature. It's all it's all native. Yep, it's all native. Um, <clears throat> as I said, I came to New Zealand and was just completely fascinated to the point of mouth-opening awe at the types of trees here that are found nowhere i mean they are found elsewhere but the the ecology as a as a unit uh evolved uh community is only here Mm. so i i think when i see an interesting plant i want it to be a native because it's just appropriate that's what i want to know that's what i want to portray so all the works in the artist uh gallery are native trees uh, generally leaves or trunks and and the way they behave um there's a there's a climbing fern called mungi mungi that is one of my fascinations and it is a very unusual um plant um, a fern that sprouts from the ground climbs up anything and everything every bush and whatever it climbs to the very top of the bush, the tallest tree to get to the sun. And they look like vines, but the vines are actually the midrib of the leaf. If you think of a fern, you've got a mm. a, a stem with yeah. all the little leaflets coming out the side. Well, mm. those vines, those leaves, those single leaves from the floor of the, of the bush to the top of the tallest tree, 30 meters one leaf can be 30 meters long or longer wow. so it's an amazing plant so it's one one sculpture is called uh homage to an unsung hero of adaptation because this is a very interesting plant that has changed and adapted to where it's where it lives mm. so that's again that's one of the great lessons that we could learn how to adapt uh, to the changing environment, mm. changing political systems. I mean, we have to learn how to, you know, learn from nature, basically. Yeah. yeah. I think the nature is adapting in a lot a lot better ways well, than it's, humans, it's been really. forced. Humans have, have forced nature to, mm. yeah. But it's like humans always corner. take a while to, yeah. to adapt. The, it takes... A long time to sort of register that, that, yeah. that they actually need to start adapting. Mm. But that is a beautiful um, sculpture, that one you're talking about, and it's so sort of delicate, isn't it? It's very delicate, but it's um, quite robust, and we're talking about bronze rods and copper um, uh, and bronze castings. It's all welded together, very strong, but um, delicate. It, yeah, it, it looks will bend. Delicate. You can't climb up. No. <laughs> You've got to keep the toddlers away <laughs> yeah. from climbing. Yeah. But um, it'll last. In, it'll, it hangs from a tree or the side of a house. It, somehow it looks really good in architectural 
human space mm, um, moving from the inside of the house to the garden that's yeah, you know that's what kiwi's like and it uh, will stand in the in 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 from a tree of the house and i've watched it carefully over the past year in gale force conditions and it's Again, it's just a very, very uh, intricate but delicate looking, mm. and the wind passes mostly straight through it, mm. uh, and it's also on on swivels, so the whole thing turns in the wind and will go up and down with the limb of the tree that it's attached, and oh, wow. it does this amazing dance That's in beautiful. the wind and the storm. Beautiful to look. Yeah. yeah, so it's like a sort of feat in engineering as well as Yeah, art. yeah, it's all carefully um, attached, uh, very laborious, hundreds and hundreds of little bits that are all brazed together by hand. Mm, wow. you just Again, you just have to keep going. You think, oh, yep, I'll get it, I'll do all these leaves and it'll be fine. And then it's like, that's not enough. Got to make more. Really? Start all over again, making more and more leaves. And wow. then you just, ugh. And of all the sculptures of that, um, of that fern turning and sort of hanging? Not all of them. Um, I make wall pieces. I yeah. make little funny little sprouts from rocks and things that are small. Because um, it's fascinating. Mm. All these different environments and stages uh, all of them are equally interesting, mm. I think. So then, some just screw on the wall like a painting. Yeah, mm. and they look amazing because they are so sort of sculptural and interesting to look at. And then, you know, you have like the Piridi leaf, which is mm -hmm. quite sort of solid and robust yep. in comparison, mm. isn't it? Mm. And that sits on a plinth or Slightly, a Slightly, I may, I do make large-scale two-and-a-half, three-metre leaves and things that are you know very imposing so i like to go from one end to the other in, in scale so at the moment the pureri leaf is most interesting it's very complicated it's five petals three to five petals or more i mean petals um leaves, leaves. leaflets yeah. that are shaped like a hand it's called the palmate leaf so it's got all these leaf leaflets radiating from a central point and that's quite massive and quite heavy for me. And that'll be outside the gallery on a plinth, a steel plinth. And um, it'll be over two meters tall altogether. Wow. So, you know, they have to kind of upscale just to give the stretch mm. of, of the process and, you know, to make it interesting. Lots of little tiny things, not very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's nice to have a sort of yeah. a combination of different yeah, like scale. like I said, you make little models mm. and then you make them in bigger. Yeah, if it looks right, if it if it has a reason to be that size, An imposing leaf has a message. It's like adaptation again. It's being bent violently by the wind, but it's not breaking. Mm. And it's also there's a tiny sprouting leaf that's kind of looks like it's being protected by the big leaf. It's almost like looking you you in the eye and T telling you not to mess with this little baby. <laughs> oh, that's so <laughs> like good. A, like a, a feminine, yeah, uh, protective. Maternal. Yeah. Mm. Mm. They're very, very beautiful. I mean, the show is gorgeous. I've seen a lot of, you know, some of the some of the no, works. Thank that you. I'm still working, so I'm a little bit tense. Yeah. Mm. Well, I mm. bet you. It's mm. always that sort of lead up to an exhibition. Yeah. Never, yeah. never easy, is it? No. Oh well, that um, it's going to be. Yeah, incredible show to see. I'm definitely going to come to your opening. Oh, wonderful. Yes. Wonderful. And uh, just about that, the, the round ones too, you know, um, 
the, the medals. The, no, no the, the round ones that are in the show. The um, oh like, yes, yeah, so that's kind of an old. See, I was an abstract sculptor like everyone else. Um, so I still and that is a skill learning how to make compositions mm. that are just what they are. So I kind of stepped back and included something from the past. I took an object, in this case, the top of a 44-gallon drum, a lid, and then I, I fashioned it so that I uh, could use it and made a plaster mold. And then I turned that mold upside down and it made this round reservoir with a little, uh, like a moat or or uh where there's a protruding rim, and when it's upside down, it's like a little channel. Mm. Um, so I very, very slowly and carefully took liquid wax. This is what I used, how I used to make sculptures when they were abstract, and pour very slowly um, onto this plaster mold and on a slight tilt, so that the 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 wax would run down these little channels on the sides, but also form these beautiful cloud-like shapes where you were pouring it and you move it around just a little bit. So it's kind of a combination of, of skill of directing, but also completely up to the forces of gravity and the plasticity or the liquid liquidity that wax solidifies. Mm. Um, and then once I kind of, you have to learn how to stop. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let that cool, and then we cast that completely abstract shape that's just by chance into bronze, and then I fashion a sprout of that climbing fern, the mungi mungi, mm. coming out of it. So it's that's the way they begin. They make these beautiful little circular clusters mm. of leaves, very beautiful. And... Uh, in this show, there's one that I think is like a bush um, right up to the edge of the of a uh, bay. So I call it Rocky Bay. So there's like these rocks and bush-clad mm -hmm. hill or cliffs right on the beach, and then the and then the flowing arms of the sculptor that form this incomplete asymmetric circle, mm. or are the outcroppings of a bay. You know? Yeah. So the sprout's coming out of that. Oh, that's mm. really interesting. Mm. Yeah, I wondered what you were thinking with that one. It's because it's a little bit different. Mm. It has a sl slight sort of more abstract. Yeah, I was. I had this idea to to use that sprout because you see them in the bush, quite spectacular. Mm. These little rounds, like a fairy ring or something. Yeah. And I, how, how do I present that if I wanted to present that as a sculpture? And then I had this thought of a puddle, and next to the puddle. Um, on the edge of the walk or the bush or whatever, there'd be a sprout, and that's. And then I said, "Oh, I used to make little wax things that look a little bit like rocks and bush." And then I thought of that little pond sort of thing, so I made the mold where the wax would run around the edge. Mm, mm. I love that. Well, mm. you're obviously a person who's always thinking and noticing things. Yeah, it's a, my way of working is like a is like a slow cooker, a pot where you just add ingredients and it bubbles away, and you go, oh, it's not quite right. And you let it cook for another day, you know. Mm. Uh, and another way of looking at it is as a computer that's open of all these different tabs are left open. Like, oh, I saw that leaf, and oh, I saw this stem, and oh, I remember this environment where they were growing and how they looked, how they worked together. 
and they just stay open, <clears throat> these ideas. Mm. And eventually, if I'm lucky, they connect. Mm. And, and there's a really interesting idea that makes it all come together. Yeah. So, or you tap into the different so, sort so of it, areas. Mm, it never stops. Yeah. It's a little, that's why artists are a little bit sort of distracted and sort of somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, your mind's always going, yep, which is a great yep, thing yep. in lots of ways. Yeah, and so just moving on to, you know, you've done obviously a lot of large-scale commissions, um, you know, public art, and you've also participated in in the big sculpture shows like um, Sculpture in the Gardens and you have work at Brick Bay Sculpture Park and Matakana. Sculpture on the Gulf and the Gardens and yeah. all these things are okay. Make a make a proposal and For if an you get exhibition. accepted, they give you a tiny little stipend. Yeah. But so it's a huge production by the artist to, to put forward to be part of the show. That's right. Sometimes can be very rewarding to meet the artists and, mm. and be part of the group. Mm. Yeah. And do you enjoy mm. those large-scale installation type I do, works? but you need to work these ideas up in my little slow cooker, mm. you know, to really – you, you've got to take the pick of the litter. You can have ten ideas or more, and you need to think carefully as the one that's really the strongest one mm. in order to invest all the time – and energy because it is hundreds of hours and sometimes tens of thousands of dollars to make these things. Yeah, that's the problem. So it's isn't a it? huge, it's a year's project. Yeah, really. mm. it's a lot of money to invest. Yeah, and it's, and it's the time that's most, the, most of the expense is just hours and hours. You just sit mm. there and you think, I've got to make all of these, and it just, Whatever you get done today is less than you'll have to do tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, it's yeah. tough on artists, isn't it, when you are waiting for the potential sale at the end of the project? Yeah, it's it's kind of an odd way of, of the, a commercial <laughs> situation. What shop has it, all the works arriving for free in the door and placed in the showroom, you know, and the, mm. the merchant does nothing. I mean, he maybe has to pay rent and all that sort of stuff, but there's no, there's no outlay for the inventory. It's, it's, I That's don't know right. who invented this system. Yeah. Who came up with this deal because they, they get, you know, a fair whack of the yeah. price. Yeah. <laughs> you have your work at the beautiful um, Brick Bay Sculpture Gardens near Matakana. I do. What do you have there and um, what do you like about having your work in that space? Well, Brick Bay is set up by very successful family um, and they have this, um, you know, they're very prominent business people and all that, but they have this amazing childlike appreciation for the bush and um, we hit a, I hit a chord um, stumbling around on site um, with Richard Disbury, um, who's one of the owners, and um, he and his wife. And we were just like children sliding up and down this hillside. And, and I was always going, what's this? What's that? all these weird – I love ferns and – uh, all these sort of so-called primitive plants like mm. lichen and um, there's all these amazing things up there. And I'd never seen them because it was kind of a swampy area and you don't normally walk through swamps because it's difficult. And, and they, this was a man-made sort of lake that backed up, the creek backed up, so it was very, very wet. So there were all these amazing things there. It was just an explosion, a whole 
range of things I'd never seen. So, and they, they had a vision to make this sculpture park trail and they wanted to have a vineyard. They wanted to have all these different things when they bought the property and they've done it. Mm, you know? they've done and amazing. So, so proud and so amazing mm. that they've done it and to be part of it is a real you know, mm. honor. Yeah. You know. And did they Perfect commission for you? Hmm? For, did they commission? Yes, piece? they invited me up there, and that's when we did that stumbling around the, the mm. bush, you know. And so. what? how did you choose what you were going to make? Well, I've made several things, one of which was a hanging. Uh, again, this is probably the first hanging uh, sculpture from the trees, and it was of, of a lichen, this amazing lichen that hangs um, from the trees and some of the some of the strands were three meters long and there was tiny beautiful white sort of um, soft uh, this almost like velvet this mm. tiny tiny little but intricate intricate and they were just amazing and so I, I made this sculpture uh, that kind of kind of like it it was stainless steel a wire that was bent and twisted and braised together and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these hanging. It was about two and a half, three meters long and you couldn't see it. Really? (laughs) You could look straight at it and you couldn't see it because it just blended in. Perfect, perfect, you know, philosophical Mm. um, achievement. Yeah. (laughs) Terrible commercial, (laughs) commercial idea, but it sold instantly sold. Really? So, broke all you know it was just like what wow so that Mm. in those with the brick bay sculpture park it's not always just permanent sculptures that are part of that they're not permanent none of them all of them for sale they're all for sale yeah they're all for sale and that way they they change yeah which is nice Mm. cool so they've had some of mine for a long time so some of them look like they're permanent. <laughs> so I, don't, I haven't sold everything. I've sold a few. Oh, that's and the great. The newest one is is a, the first uh, the first attempt at making mungy mungy, and it took long enough. And I said that's good enough, and it looks right. It was only two. No, it was only like one and a half meter or something. It wasn't that big, but it just that was it. I could just that was where I should stop. I just had this um, very strong emotional. Um, knowledge that it was finished. Mm. So I took that up, and of course, it's very difficult to see. Blends in. I tried to make the colors a little bit more bluish than the normal leaves, so that it would do. You know, oh, it's that, you know. See it, and it's. I found as good a place to hang it as I could. And some people tell me they could see it. They have saw it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's up there now. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. But mm. then it's, you know, it's nice for people to know that it's there and then they can they do go it. looking the, for it. The photographer they chose did the most beautiful photography. She must have been up on ladders or something to get right up close. Mm. And I was just, I was just amazed at the photographs. Mm. So they they published that on their website and everything, yeah. so you can see it mm, before you great. go up there if you yeah. can find it. <laughs> yeah, then you can find it like a treasure yeah. hunt. Yeah, and mm. is that actually part of a tree hanging, hanging It's hanging from in a tree, tree. Yeah. yeah. And they're, they're, they're put on with Velcro, just wrapped. There's a wood pigeon outside the window. Yeah, Kiriru comes to see me the, often. on the seeds and the Yeah, I like to think he's palms. coming to see me, but yeah. it may have something to do with the it food. might be the fruit. <laughs> Shame. <laughs> he's so beautiful. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I attach things to trees using just a loop of Velcro. So it's very, very 
um, gentle on the tree. Mm. And then the Velcro is very strong. You know, it will not, if you make a loop out of Velcro and try to pull it apart, mm. you know, it's almost like handcuffs. Yeah. Know? It's amazing. And then I just put a little loop of, of metal, like the stainless steel or whatever, and then close the, um, the Velcro around mm. it. And then everything hangs from that. Wow. Mm. Cool. And then you've also got work at the um, Botanical Gardens in Auckland. Yeah, the Botanical Gardens are, again, this beautiful idealistic um, philosophy about um, what they do. They use no poisons or anything. It's completely organic. But also they wanted to have a uh, a botanical and sculpture gardens, a a very long-range radical vision, you know, because the first show was back in 2005, and they already had this worked out. They always way back then they wanted it, and they, um, we, um, Richard Matheson, a friend of mine, is an amazing uh, hangs work. It's his job, hanging work as well as a sculptor. He f- saw the building and when it was just finished, and he said, "This is a perfect gallery in, indoors. Mm. We should have an exhibition." So um, we we sent word around to all our friends, sculptors, and said, "Do you have any work?" that we can just put on display. So it was a pop-up exhibition before Christchurch invented the word pop-up shows. <laughs> and we put it up, and it looked amazing. Indoor, big works indoors, small works indoors at that gallery. And um, the, the friends who are just, they're interested, they want to support the the gardens, quite a big group. They, they're they president of wherever you're, you call it, ran up to us and said, this is what we've been wanting to do for years. We've got all the resource consents, and but we don't know any sculptors. So, really? Yep. So uh, Richard and I sat down in the first meeting and laid out the way we wanted it to be, all suited from the viewpoint of the sculptors. Mm, brilliant. And then I said, okay, I want to withdraw from, from being part of the organizing because I want to submit. I want to mm. have work in the shows. Yeah. So Richard carried on for 20 years. But basically, they have this vision, and it's been unfolding. And in all the works at the gardens are gifted by the friends. They have a subscription. They pay for the first one. And then every year or every two years, they buy at least one work from the exhibition to be permanently installed. Oh, and the and all the proceeds from sales go into that fund. So it's self-perpetuating. Mm. So Auckland has this really, really important sculpture collection that's growing every you know, constantly. Mm. And also it places sculpture in public for everyone to see all the time. And half a million people go through the gardens every summer. So there's an entire generation that have been going out there for nearly 20 years, seeing works in public, and it's all free. It's all Mm, free. It's just there. And that is a generation that's growing up seeing sculpture in public, just like Europeans. Yeah, a it's a. It's a, um, you know, it's a, it's a sea change. Yeah. Sea change. Yeah. Mm. And it's such a gift yeah. to Auckland. And they're so supportive. I mean, they have, they get people to dig the holes and, you mm. know, pour the concrete for the footings and 
and they have engineering firms and all that that give their time for free to help pull it off. And the, and the thing that's good for sculptors, especially because it's a three-month exhibition, mm. whereas you spend a year making these things, and it's out there for three months. Mm, which whereas is amazing. Normally it's like three days or two yeah, weekends or yeah. two weeks with the weekends so on each end. You know, mm. So it's three months, a new exhibition every year for three every months. Every other year. Every other year. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. And what work do you have there at the moment? They bought... <laughs> A giant Tanikaha leaf, um, and that was the leaf I found lying in the bush when I was drawing that picture, the Tanikaha leaf, which is an amazingly beautiful leaf, um, a, a stem with little leaflets on all the way up the length and one at the top, and it's 2.5 meters tall, big bronze that hangs on the side of the big, beautiful building like a brooch, you mm. know, a person wearing a beautiful brooch. This Gorgeous. building, you know, it yeah. just looks fantastic. And against the concrete, isn't it? Mm. Is it it's, it's, the it's against the wall. concrete wall. Yeah, which yeah. looks so good. Yeah. That's mm. on your blog post, so people can yep. check that out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, That's really stunning. And and I love the bronze with the concrete and then also some wood in that building as mm. well. It's just it's beautifully it really works. The, the columns holding up the inside of the atrium and everything look like trees. They're, they're based on trees. Mm. They have these beautiful swelling wooden columns and then at the top they displayed like the the limbs branches of a tree holding up the roof wow. amazing gorgeous mm. Mm. oh well your work seems to fit into that kind of environment so beautifully yeah and they're they're just so supportive and they they believe in it and the friends they do all the work volunteers they mm. they, they just you know working their hearts out mm. and it's beautifully done and it's amazing it's amazing people should go out there it's a little bit out of town but it's right next to the motorway. Yeah, you know, if you're going south, so it's well worth it. I'll put the link to that in your blog post as mm. well. Okay, well, we are up to our final four questions. Oh, here we go. Here we go, Jim. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, who is your favourite artist of all time, and how have they influenced your work? Well, there's a lot of the all timeies, but you know, timers that go way back. But the one that really, really gets me is Isamu Noguchi. And I noticed in your lounge up in your house, you have a Noguchi um, coffee table. Did you yes, know that? Yes, yeah, yep, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, he was uh, ethnic Japanese. His father was Japanese, his mother was uh, European, he was born in America. And his whole life, he felt like he was an outsider. In America, he was Japanese, and he'd go live in Jap- Japan, and he was, you know, American. You know, mm. back and forth. But his work is the ideal for me because he lived for the work. He put all the time needed into making the works perfect. And he wasn't – he didn't follow trends. He did what he wanted to do in his whole life, and he worked – well into his 70s, maybe 80s, and uh, made gigantic stone pieces that were just thousands of hours of pounding away and big bronzes and the most delicate little, he made paper lanterns. That was a commercial thing. He makes these beautiful, you know, new design, the traditional Japanese lanterns. Mm. 
and all kinds of stuff. You just everything that he made was just perfect. You wow. know, lots of abstract work through lots of different decades and styles, using all kinds of materials. And oh, just I heard him speak twice, and he was well into his seventies, but he had this energy, this little man, slim, and he, but he was like made out of tool steel. Like a whip, he he had this energy that just came out of him when he spoke. Amazing! Mm, how incredible! Mm. Wow! I'll put that um, link to his. his yes, yes, work. he's had yeah. a lot of big exhibitions in London and mm. all over the world in the last few years. He felt as though he was overlooked. I mean, he he was showing with the great uh, people in the '30s, the great people in the '50s in New York City and showing all over the world, big, big commissions and all kinds. He, he designed playgrounds. You know, he did so much. Mm. Um, and and he, he never was, you know, never made it to the top. He was just sort of a sideliner. And um, as a sculptor, what do you think is your biggest challenge? <sighs> I think just just to keep going, really. Um the one thing that can get you down is is feeling as though you're being left out, you know, um, and the publicity and how people are trumpeted and and you know you've been working and and you know you make the work and that's what you need to remember to calm down and just do the work. That's the important thing. All this other stuff is. You know, is distraction, you know. If you want to be an artist, do the work and keep doing the work. Nothing else is important. You can't be an artist unless you do the work. Mm. <laughs> so true. Mm. And what would you say to your younger artistic self? I think <clears throat> network more earlier, be involved with people. You, you, I'm, you or I mentioned about being part of these outdoor exhibitions. Um, my wife, Bunny, she noticed that when I started drawing with a group, suddenly I would come home all invigorated and lively and happy and talking. Uh, so being around fellow artists, making, making associations, like working together as a group in any way, even if it's just just practicing drawing is what I started that she noticed the difference. It's just like running to an athlete. Just draw, draw. You should draw all the time. Mm. And that was that just gave me a community and it, and it felt so good. Yeah. I met all these amazing women that were in they were twenty, thirty years older than me and they they've been working all their lives and of course hardly any of them had ever been recognized. Mm. But they were just the most amazing women from you know, the generations before I came to New Zealand, you know, when you had no biscuits, you know. <laughs> the job they <laughs> hated most was filling the tins. <laughs> oh my God. No biscuits. <laughs> You had to make them. You know, had to have them waiting for people Mm. came around for a cup of tea. You had Mm. to have the bin full. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but it's it's so true, isn't it? That um, network is is really important. I think keeps you alive. Yeah, you're not you're not alone. And safety in numbers too. Mm, Exactly. Um, Sculptors have to be friendly. 
because they need people to help lift and move stuff. Yeah, yeah. And I imagine that yeah. you, you know, your sort of band of sculptors, yeah. you do help each other quite a bit. Oh, yeah, yeah. And also if you show together, then it's not just you, you know, out mm. there in the wind hanging. <laughs> <laughs> and um, last question, Jim, is a big one. Why do you make what you make? You take that in a lot of different ways. I can't believe I can do what I do. You're growing up in a in a dog eat dog. Money is everything. Business is everything. Um, USA. Being an artist is 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 as a young fellow looking at it. It's just like that's that's a suspicious looking job. Or how can you have a career to do that? So I studied bot you know biology, mm-hmm. thinking that. You know, maybe there's a job there somewhere. And I, w- I was fascinated by the sea. I wanted to be a marine biologist. And then I had this amazing professor that showed me the forest, you know. So I can't believe I can do it. So moving down here and being able to do it, um, you know, I had to work two jobs, you know, art and in a way to support myself. All artists have two or three jobs. And the family, kids, young kids, and all that stuff, mm-hmm. house, blah, blah, blah. So I have this opportunity, and, if, and I cannot waste it. So I, there is a personal drive, that, and I love to work. I hate suddenly I have to go on holiday, you know. Really? Well, but this is time when I could get a lot of work done. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I've driven to do it, but also the, the opportunity that living here and it's a supportive community. People think art is, you know, more important than they do in America. The only reason it's important there is because people can make a lot of money out of it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, different mm-hmm. focus. Yeah. Oh, that's nice that you think of New Zealand in that oh, way. Oh, it's very, very uh, – it's, it's a world away from what I grew up with, mm. and, and I really appreciate it. And I feel so, like you belong mm. here. You know, you've found your place. Well, I, I am a Kiwi. I've been alive – Longer than most Kiwis. <laughs> I've been here longer. <laughs> yeah, I came in my 20s. Yeah. yeah. I'm and how old 70. are you now, Jim? Almost, I'll be 70 this year. Amazing. So, so I've done my time. You have, and you're just <laughs> such a, you know, it's incredible actually and quite a, a privilege and an honor for me to speak to someone with such an incredible oh, career. Mm. You know, you've been working for, for so long yeah. and you've done so many amazing Thank things. You. I I feel proud of what I've done, and um, I just do it. You know, I haven't really pushed to talk about it. I've been on the radio and all that a few times, and it's amazing this country. You can get on the national radio. You can meet the prime minister. You know, and mm. it's no big to people just go, eh, you know, <laughs> you know, Queen's um, representative more than once. You mm. know? My friends at home just don't understand. Yeah. You know? Mm. Uh, well, thank you very much for coming on the Creative you, Matters Andy. podcast. Lovely time. Oh. Very comfortable. I got this great view of the bush right outside your window. Yeah, and the kereru came to visit, yeah, so that's a yeah. good omen. The Nico Palms, are, we, we have one in the front garden, but you've got hundreds, it looks like. Yeah, we've got a lot of Nikos, and we mm. have a lot of stuff on the ground from them, but, mm. you know, mm. you've got to yep. learn to love those. And you get lots of babies coming up. Yeah, mm. but um, maybe you need to do a Nico Palm, actually. I have made a tiny little brooch. Have you? Beautiful. I'm so proud. There was another 
low relief project right mm. at the very beginning. I'm mm. so pleased with it. Yeah. Wow, mm. that would be beautiful. It's and tiny. Then, it's like 50 millimeters. Oh, high gorgeous. By like 20 millimeters I'd wide. I'd love to see it. Maybe send me a photo and we can put it on the blog yeah, post. They're hard to make, so I don't really. Yeah. <laughs> I made one all the time. So, uh, yeah, lo- lovely to meet you, Jim. Oh, thank, thank you very you. much. I've had a great time. Mm. Me too.